So I think query mining in general, it's really shifted, right? It's not quite as critical as it used to be, but, but think about it from the perspective of what's been going on in the world. Like we've had meaningful shifts in search behavior and the, the, the types of things people need and how they formulate what those things are. And so the nice thing about broad match is it's automatically capturing that. But you as the advertiser, as the marketer, you should know about these new ways of searching so that you can hone your messaging along with that, right? And so maybe it's not so much about splitting it out into micro, teeny tiny little ad groups with just one exact match keywords, but it's about finding these themes within those new search queries and, and building new ad groups for those new themes as they start to evolve. You're listening to the Paris Talks Marketing Podcast, where we interview top marketing leaders at high growth SaaS, and other recurring revenue-based companies. Our goal with this podcast is to cut through the fluff and jargon of digital marketing to reveal what's really working at some of the fastest growing, most successful SaaS companies today. The Paris Talks Marketing Podcast is sponsored by Hop Online, a performance growth marketing agency. If you like this episode and would like to have a similar conversation with someone at our agency, just go to hop Dot online, H-O-P dot online, and book a discovery call with one of our strategists today. Now, let's get into the episode. Hi, everybody. Welcome back to another episode of Paris Talks Marketing. Today, my guest is Fred Valles, and Fred is the co-founder of Optimizer, which he founded in 2013 to give search marketers the tools they need to make managing pay-per-click accounts quick and simple. Fred's a former Google executive and one of the tech giant's first 500 employees. Fred spent close to 10 years managing and evangelizing AdWords, which is now Google Ads, and is best remembered for his work on Quality Score. Can't wait to hear about that. Fred is also an accomplished speaker on PPC account management, automation, and scripts. Having spoken at high-profile events like SMX Advanced and Hero Conference, he's also the host of Optimizer's PPC Town Hall a live video podcast. He was recognized as 2018's SEM Contributor of the Year by Search Engine Land and Search Marketer of the Year for 2021 by Search Engine Land. After publishing his first book, Digital Marketing in an AI World, Future Proofing Your PPC Agency in 2019, Fred is currently working on his second book called Unlevel the Playing Field, The Biggest Mind Shift in PPC History about how to use automation to gain competitive advantage. So, Fred, welcome to the show. Thank you, Paris. I mean, my God, that's like the best intro I've ever gotten, I think. (laughs) That's a lot, and I I don't even know where to start, but I first want to understand about your work at Google with Quality Score. Can you tell folks out there, what is Quality Score, and what was your contribution with that? Yeah, I mean, so when I joined Google in 2002, the relevance of the ads was really determined by people like me who were reviewing your keywords and making a manual judgment if we thought that keyword was relevant enough to your business. But Google very quickly realized that that was not scalable, that was not necessarily the fairest way to go about things. And they were sitting on this these throws of data. And so they, they said, well, we can basically look at click-through rate. So every time we show an ad, we can measure the relevance of that ad just by gauging how many people then go and click on it and want to know more, right? And so that's the best gauge. And so CTR became part of the ad ranking factor. But then as the the system became more advanced, advertisers became more sophisticated and maybe gaming some of the system, Google said, well, we're, we're going to call it quality score. So it's still like this predictive mechanism that gauges the relevance of a keyword to the search that happens. And that's a huge part of the ad rank. So the higher your quality score, the higher your ad rank, the less you have to pay to get that click. 
I was on that team for about seven years. I can't say I invented it, unfortunately. Otherwise, I'd probably be much richer. But yeah, still was involved in, in many iterations of that and kind of taking it pretty close to the stage it's in today. And now I hear and read that quality score in the age of automated bidding now, quality score is becoming less and less of a factor. Is that true? Well, I think it's becoming less visible. People certainly talk about it less, mm -hmm. but it's still a huge factor, right? Because if you think about automated bidding, the job of automated bidding is to take your cost per acquisition or return on ad spend target mm -hmm. and then figure out based on the expected conversion rate, the expected value from a click, what is the right bid to set for that auction. Mm -hmm. And then that's the bid, which in the past you would have set manually, it would have been your max CPC. But that joins up with the quality score and still determines your ad rank. And that quality score component, that is still a separate thing. That is not being automated away. So if you have horrendous quality score, it just means that the system is going to bid what it's allowed to bid. But you combine that with a, a horrible quality score, your ad's going to rank very low. So you're going to lose press and share due to rank issues, due to quality oh, score cool. issues. And so fixing that is actually, I think, still one of the biggest levers that people have to make um, to, to be more successful in PPC. It, it is a bit tricky, yeah. of course, when you start thinking about maybe RSAs and Google actually writing the ads on the fly, so there's a little bit less control. But at the end of the day, I mean, you can still have a great landing page with a good privacy policy, good business practices. You know, when you have your 15 headline assets that you can provide in an RSA, you still got to think about how do I make that relevant to what I think these users are searching for. Just for those who may not know, what does RSA stand for? Yeah, RSA, this is your new ad format in search. So it stands for responsive search ad. So Google has gone through many iterations of what they call the text ad, you know, the headlines and the description. Yeah. Nowadays, they've said machine learning is actually going to be better at putting together the best ad for every search. So rather than asking an advertiser to give two headlines or three headlines and description, it says, and sorry, when I say three headlines, it's like, these are the three headlines that go together with this description. And then there's a second ad with these three headlines and this description. That's expanded text ads. That's the old school way. Google's now mm -hmm. shifting and saying, okay, just give us 15 headlines and four descriptions. And on the fly, it's going to mix and match those together to produce the highest quality ad. My understanding of quality score was how well al aligned you had the keyword, which indicated the intent of the searcher to the ad, which is was satisfying that question, and then the quality of the landing page and delivering on the promise that was stated in the ad. And now in the age of automation and primarily automated bidding, responsive search ads, and also I think the emergence of broad match keywords, how much control now do marketers have over quality score if most of the ad clicks are triggered off of broad match, most of the ads are built from a responsive search ad, and then you still have the landing page. And of course that is still under mm -hmm. very direct control, but how has that really changed the PPC marketer's ability to influence quality score? Yeah, it's a good point. I mean, in the past you had your keyword, you had your specific ad and you had your specific landing page and it was all very controlled, right? So you knew exactly if you had a low quality score on this keyword, you knew which ad to go and fix and you knew which landing page to go and fix. So that's obviously become much more difficult. But see, one of my big problems with Google right now is that everything to them seems to be a bid management problem and they've invested really heavily in automating bid management, right? So you, you could take it from the perspective that, okay, so you have your broad match keyword, Google's going to show you for some random query, but yeah, it's not the highest quality query, right? 
right? So it's kind of related to what you're doing, but not exactly. So it's got a low quality score. So now they, they, they might say, well, we're going to bid lower to make up for the fact that it's not the best query. I come from the perspective that I'd rather look at my search terms report and figure out what these queries are and then make a determination that says, okay, this is actually, it's somewhat related to my business. And the reason that maybe it doesn't have the best quality or the best position is because I haven't written an ad for it. And, and so there's still techniques that you can do looking at these queries and you find high volume new queries and you put them in a new ad group with a whole new set of RSA assets. And you, and you can still steer the system towards a better solution. And now, now I'm actually working on core relevance as opposed to using bid management as a crutch to still drive some performance. And you know what? For the average person, that crutch is really good, right? Because it's better than what you had before, which was doing almost nothing. But if you're a BPC expert and you're really looking to eke out that next 5 10% of performance, then yeah, I think you can still optimize quite a bit. We might get a little bit in the weeds here, but I'm really dying to pick your brain around some of these things. Also, with the emergence of AI, broad match keywords gives greater discretion to Google to try to infer intent based on other signals that are beyond the keyword. And it allows, I think it allows marketers to grow and to get more access to new impressions that they otherwise wouldn't have. Do you still think it's very important if as marketers are shifting more of their clicks to broad match keywords, do you think it's still very important to mine through that search terms report and still split off the really good terms that you find into exact match targeted ad groups? Yeah, so I don't think that's necessarily the most important anymore. So some people refer to that as the peel and stick methodology or the alpha beta methodology. It has a variety of names. And so having that exact match is not necessarily going to give you all that much benefit, right? Because, you know, unless you're really seeing that that new query is meaningfully different from the broad match that it came from, mm-hmm. and that maybe warrants a new ad text, but otherwise I would just let that go by itself. And, and so I think query mining in general, it's really shifted, right? It's not quite as critical as it used to be, but, but think about it from the perspective of like the past two and a half years, three years, what's been going on in the world. Like we've had meaningful shifts in search behavior and the, the, the types of things people need and how they formulate what those things are. And so the nice thing about broad match is it's automatically capturing that. But you as the advertiser, as the marketer, you should know about these new ways of searching so that you can hone your messaging along with that, right? And so maybe it's not so much about splitting it out into micro, teeny tiny little ad groups with just one exact match keywords, but it's about finding these themes within those new search queries and and building new ad groups for those new themes as they start to evolve. Yeah. And is this connected to how people are searching on mobile devices versus the old type-in searches on desktop? I mean, I think it's that. I think it's voice assistance. Mm-hmm. It just, depending on the mode that you're in, you're going to type more, type less. You're going to formulate it more as a spoken query. And that does produce differences, right? So, I mean, maybe not the best example of this, but one thing that we did see at the beginning of the pandemic was travel advertisers were seeing spikes in searches for cancel my trip. And that mm-hmm. had always been sort of a low volume query that a lot of advertisers mm-hmm. kind of ignored. So they didn't have yeah. negative matches for it. But if you were actually query mining, you would see, oh my God, all of a sudden, like that's become a significant portion of what people search for. That's not what I want to show my ads for. So let me put in a negative, right? But then by the same token, as people shifted from using mass transit to go to work, maybe they wanted more bicycles, right? And so if you were a bike shop, maybe most of the bikes you were selling were recreational bikes, but all of a sudden you see the shift in what people search for, uh, like best bike to get to work without getting my pants dirty, right? 
who knows but but that that's like a theme and that you should jump on that you should capitalize because obviously the ads that you have about hey we got cool mountain bikes to ride in the mountains mm-hmm. well yeah great but that's not going to keep your pants clean so make yeah. an ad group about your commuter bikes yeah and our understanding and what google has also been coaching us on is that the rule of thumb should be one ad group per landing page so the old, old method would have been maybe the skag approach where you you just have almost a single keyword ad group. But now they're saying one ad group per landing page. And I think that kind of aligns with what you said about the themes or a certain type of intent. Do you believe that that should be the case, that each ad group should have its own unique landing page? Yeah, I mean, so that's kind of the the stag. So stag was single keyword ad group, like you said, and now it's more stag, single Single theme theme. ad group. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think that's a very reasonable shift. And I'm cautious to say like that means every ad group needs to have its own landing page because some people will take that to the extreme and be like that's the rule that you must follow and by the way like people say you should have like five to ten keywords per ad group there's no scientific backing for that but that was something i put in a presentation when i worked at google 20 years ago Mm -hmm. and that just sort of became gospel but that's a number i pulled out of a hat to make a point that generally if you have more than 10 keywords you can probably start subdividing that thematically into smaller tighter grouped themes so yes i mean Generally speaking, having one landing page per ad group makes sense, but I don't think it's an absolute rule. Mm-hmm. Okay. And let's talk about what, where this is all headed. If someone now is just starting a career and let's say that they really want to be a, a Google Ads expert, what are some of the new skills that that person really needs to hone in on versus what they would have needed to master, say, five years ago? Yeah. I mean, so in, in the first book I wrote, I talked about as a new PPC practitioner, you still got to get your fundamentals, right? So you now grow up into PPC, you've got automated bidding. Well, great, but you have to understand where automated bidding comes from, what its goals are, and kind of at a high level, how it's working, right? Because mm-hmm. knowing what it's doing, that's going to give you the ability to manipulate the system to your advantage. So that'd be the first point, like make sure you still read some of the old school books to help you understand how all these pieces fit together. But then when you grab graduate into this new world, I think it's much less about pushing a gajillion buttons about specific keywords and specific bids and bid adjustments and this and that. It's much more about helping the machine learning system from Google understand what it is that your goals are. So are you correctly reporting conversions to Google? And very simple, if you're a lead gen, you tell Google that somebody filling out a form on your page, that's a conversion. Well, sure, that's kind of one step towards a conversion, but it's not a real conversion, right? You want those lead form form fills to become actual paying customers at some stage. That's your conversion. So how do you do a better job of communicating that? And then setting goals when it comes to automated bidding. Let let me ask you, would you prefer a 500% ROAS or a 600% ROAS? Without any extra information, most people will say- six, I guess. Higher is better. Exactly. And that makes total sense. But my question was actually kind of dumb. Like, that's not the right question because ROAS is just a lever in your quest as a business for top line revenue or profit. And those are different. You're going to have different ideal ROAS targets depending on what it is you're trying to achieve. Actually going to a lower ROAS, sure, you get less profit per sale. But because you're now more competitive in the auction, you may dramatically increase the number of sales and your overall profit may grow, mm-hmm. right? So how do you figure right. out what that point is? That's a skill. That's a new skill. And then manipulation of feed-based data, right? So everything into Google is becoming much more about structured data. Mm-hmm. Uh, and again, RSA is a good example. Ads used to be, I wrote a specific ad. Now it's like a bunch of components of ads that I have to put in and I have to figure out across many campaigns, many accounts, what's working well, what's not working well. When it comes to e-commerce, I'm not making ads for products. 
I send in a product feed to Google. Mm-hmm. And from that product feed, it'll pull out my title. And if I sell red shoes, but my title says maroon shoes, which is like a variation of red, is that really what people search for, right? Or could that have been optimized to be a more standard color? And so it's these little feed-based optimizations that you also got to work more on. Mm-hmm. So I think those are uh, three pretty good ones to focus on. Yeah. What do you think about value-based bidding? I think you, you alluded to it when you said, what is a true conversion if it's not necessarily a lead capture? You want to see when that becomes a sale. Can you help our audience understand this concept of value-based bidding? Yeah, exactly. I'm a big fan of value-based bidding. Google's also talking quite a bit about value-based bidding these days. But it's simply, think about it as a mechanism to point the machine learning systems from Google in the right direction, right? And so if you're just reporting conversions and every optimization that you do is based off of a conversion, there's not a lot of nuance in that, right? And so a simple example would be in e-commerce where you traditionally report values. So you have your conversions being reported, but also a value for each conversion. Now that value that you report is typically the, the basket size. How much did that person purchase? But what about, okay, so now you get two sales and they're each $100. So you report two conversions, $100 each. Now the machine learning system says, okay, this was great. Uh, I should get more of these types of clicks that lead to these types of conversions. But you as the advertiser, you may actually have some insight that says, oh, well, you know, person A, they returned 75% of the stuff a couple of weeks later. And person B, they kept everything. And not only that, they came back and bought more, right? So there's really hugely different values in that. There's lifetime value. There's, you know, that instant value. There's profit even. Mm-hmm. And so how do you communicate that to Google so that now you can tell the machine that, oh, even though A and B looked exactly the same at the beginning, we should have tweaked that value. We should have said B was actually worth more than $100. And so even by saying it was $105, which may not have been the true value, but now all things being equal and the machine is being asked to pick between click A and click B, it's going to prefer click B. So over time, it's going to give you more of those types of clicks mm-hmm. that meet the criteria that you want. And then, of course, you can apply this to lead gen as well. It's not just e-commerce, right? It's just about, okay, while we sell an an educational program, first step, you fill out a form on the page to get some information, but then you talk to our counselors. Some people never pick up the phone when the counselor calls, right? So that should be devalued. The person who does pick up the phone, probably more likely to eventually become a a student. So you want to value that up. And, And so at every stage of your sales funnel, you want to increase those values as you see somebody becoming a more likely customer. And that's value based bidding. That's how you, you now, instead of just having the conversion, you report a value and the value helps the machine steer you in the direction of what you want. Mm-hmm. And a lot of our listeners are SaaS companies with subscription-based revenue. How can value-based bidding work for a company with a monthly subscription where the revenues are way out into the future? Yeah. So, uh, and that, that's a really cool skill to develop, but it's about predicting, right? So if you have a longer sales cycle or the lifetime value gets determined, obviously, over the course of many, many years as a SaaS company, the trick now becomes, you know, somebody um, and, and we're a SaaS company to optimize, right? So I'll give you as me as the example, but you go to our page, you sign up for the free trial. Like that's stage one of the, that's a conversion. We actually look at that. But then as you become a customer two weeks later, you actually pay for the the, the software after your free trial. That 
is a higher value conversion, right? So we send in a different conversion and that would be the conversion we actually want to optimize towards. The problem then becomes sometimes you don't have enough conversions of the, the actual conversion you want in a 30 day period. So now the machine is kind of stuck. It can't move fast enough. So then the trick becomes, well, how do we sort of figure out what are the commonalities, not just from the customers who signed up this month, but from the years that we've been in business, like do people in the United States tend to convert more frequently from a trial to a paid plan than people in Bulgaria, than people in France? What about based on the business size? All these other factors that you probably have in your CRM system, you're probably in a SaaS company, you're capturing a lot of data about, okay, they signed up, but how much do they engage with the product? Like, do they come back daily? Do they come back weekly? How much do they engage? How many team members did they add? Yeah. And all of these things become factors, right? And so you can do a, cor- a simple correlation study and you can say, okay, these are the types of leads, customers that tend to become long lifetime value or high lifetime value. And so the moment that somebody signs up, we look at all the factors around it in the first two or three days. And then we can already send something back to Google that says, even though we don't know for sure, this client seems to have all the signals associated with a higher lifetime value. So get us more of this type of click. And now you can actually manipulate the machine to do this its job much more quickly. Mm-hmm. That's brilliant. I can tell you that what we're working on in our agency right now is to actually build a predictive LTV models nice. with machine learning. And uh, we're, we're on our second one now. And it's, it's very exciting because I think when you match, when you bring in a PLTV value and you match that with value-based bidding, I think that, that for a SaaS company, and, and I think 99% of digital advertising in SaaS is still target CPA with just fixed X dollars per trial goals, per free trial or or freemium acquisition, then you get a major competitive advantage. So you guys are totally on the cutting edge then. I mean, and I talked to some people at Google who said that their fastest growing segment of advertisers are basically the ones that are in lead gen, but have figured out how to really communicate their CRM data. But also when you start filling in the gaps, right, your CRM may have holes in the data. The more that you can use predictive mechanisms like what your agency is doing to fill in those gaps, the faster the machine learns, learns, the more it gets you to business growth. And so that's a really fast growing segment of Google advertisers. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I think with B2B where you have lead gen goals, also that for SaaS companies, a lot of times you have a two, maybe two different types of acquisition motions. One would be a product-led growth motion where you don't you don't really send leads to salespeople, but you just try to get the, a free version of the product into the hands of as many people as possible. And that's a higher volume, low touch motion. I think that's that one is actually more suitable for modeling PLTV and doing value-based bidding. But then you've got the more classic high, high sales touch route, which is the typical call to action on that is to book a demo, book a demo with a salesperson. And then you have these different stages that are commonly MQL, SQL, opportunity, maybe offer offer sent, closed and won, closed and lost. And then a salesperson is manually moving that deal through the different stages as they get closer and closer and adjusting the probabilities and and the salesperson puts in a value. Like maybe I think Fred is going to sign up for our enterprise plan. I can get him on a custom plan and that's worth $10,000 a year, but he's only an opportunity with 40% probability right now. So that value at that stage would be say $4,000. But then if you move towards the next negotiation stage or whatever, you go up to 80%, there's another value. And I think that what's really cool here is that you can send all these values back to Google and you can do something like maximize conversion value, which is really, in my opinion, just tells Google, 
hey, look, don't, it doesn't really matter. You're not only optimizing for customer acquisition, but you're just, every time there's a value event that's sent back from the CRM, just take it into consideration. And your job is just maximize that value overall. So if you can get a value of 10,000 for a one customer, great. But if you can also get a value of a uh, 1,000 for somebody who's an MQL with a 10% probability of closing. Well, then you need 10 of those to match the, the other one that you got on the, on the new customer. So I see it just almost like a game where you're trying to feed data. You're trying to feed Google the data that it needs to, to achieve a high score as it plays a game of machine learning. Exactly. It's a game and it's a fun game, right? Yeah. Yeah. And, and I think that the goal of the marketer now or the PPC expert, the Google ads expert is not necessarily what you can do in the platform, but it's what you can bring into the platform. If you can bring data that Google doesn't have access to, which is typically data that lives in, in inside of a proprietary CRM, your CRM, you'll be better off than just trying to optimize the, the stuff that Google already has, which is keywords, search queries, and everything else. So this Totally is, agree. Totally. <laughs> and let's talk about the upcoming book, which is, it's about on-level playing field, the biggest mind shift in PPC history. What is that all about? What is this mind shift that you're referring to? Got it right here. So uh, yeah, it's available on Amazon. It's available as an audiobook, paperback, or Kindle. But yeah, I mean, it's, it's a lot of what we just talked about. It's really, the mind shift is stop worrying about the details inside the ad system and worry about what's at the periphery, at the boundaries of that system and how you can communicate goals and targets and what conversions are and how you bring feed-based data, right? So all the, all the pieces that the Google system will then use to craft what it does, but also with the right input. So it, it knows what the goals are. And uh, you worked at Google too, right? So, but one of the, the, the classic presentations within Google, and that was also externally given, was basically the 10 principles of innovation, the 10 reasons why Google is such an innovative and world-changing company. Mm -hmm. And uh, I think it was number five, but it was about share all information. And it really came from the, the, the idea that you had to share information with people because you hire lots and lots of employees, right? You got tens of thousands of people working at Google. Presumably, you've tried to hire smart people, but it's really hard to get them all to move in, in the right direction. And so how you do that is by, first of all, telling them very clearly what are the goals of the company. And Google has OKRs for that, objectives and key results. So everyone within the company can look at those and knows what the company mission is from the highest level to the lowest level. And then the second part of sharing all information is, you know, if there's business data, like make that accessible so that these smart people, knowing what the goals are, can use the same data to come up with solutions. Now, they may go about finding those solutions in different ways, but generally they'll come to the same end stage, which is driving success. So now, I mean, this presentation was 20 years old. Nowadays, we're talking about machine learning and artificial intelligence. But think of the computer as that human colleague, right? It's, it's a really smart system. It can really help you. It can do a lot of the work you used to do and take mm -hmm. a, a load of your plate. But you have to tell it what it is you want. You can no longer just be like vague like you were maybe in the past with the system. You have to tell it what is a real conversion and what is that real conversion actually worth? And mm -hmm. where is your profit margin lie? Because without that, it's just just going to do what it thinks is the right thing, but that may not be what you wanted it to do. And so that's like, the, and that's the huge mind shift is we have to stop worrying about pushing every dial and think much more about the big picture and how we help the machine learn. Mm -hmm. And do you think that some businesses themselves struggle with articulating that value? Absolutely. Into Google because they, <laughs> they just don't really have their own house in order, so to speak. 
that's the thing. I mean, for 20 yeah. years, you haven't, you've been able to get really good results on PPC without having to answer that question. So some people have never learned how to answer that question. Other people have gotten unlearned, I, I guess, to a degree. But see, here's the thing. You made a really good point. You said a lot of that data tends to live in CRM systems in your own business data. But if you're a smaller business, I mean, maybe you don't have a CRM system. But you as the business owner, you still know about stuff related to your business. Here's an example. I mean, if you sell car supplies, you probably know that whenever it starts freezing, you're going to sell more car batteries because frost, the first frost of the year, that's when car batteries die. Does Google know about that? I mean, maybe, but do they consider it as part of the bidding system? Probably not. We're not sure, but better guess than not is that they don't look at it. So, and that's your knowledge, right? So you don't have to know how many more batteries do I sell, but you just know that this is a big opportunity. So maybe when you see the first frost coming, you change your target return on ad spend. You're like, well, I'm willing to accept a lower return on ad spend because in my mind, I know that tomorrow it's going to freeze. I'm actually going to sell way more batteries, my conversion rate is going to be way better. And that's going to make up for my lower return on ad spend. And that helps you capitalize on that opportunity. Right. And so, but, but again, this comes from something, you know, it's like a gut feeling about your business. And this is weird too, right? Because we've been so trained in PPC to be specific, get it exactly right. But oftentimes even a gut instinct can help you point the machine a little bit more in the right direction. And if you keep doing that week over week, you say, okay, well, I'll, I'll nudge it a little bit more towards this. Ah, it's still working. My results are still good. Okay. Let me give it a little bit more of a nudge. And you keep doing that. And eventually these 1% changes keep stacking up and you're really making a meaningful difference to your business. Mm -hmm. That's great. Now, a quick word from our sponsor. The Paris Talks Marketing Show is affiliated with Hop Online, a performance marketing agency focused on high-growth SaaS and other recurring revenue-based companies. If you like the flow of this conversation, you may want to consider jumping on a discovery call with someone at Hop Online. A discovery call is similar to my podcast interviews in a lot of ways. We'll get to know your business goals, competitive landscape, and marketing needs. And you'll almost certainly come away with some new ideas for how to accelerate your customer and revenue growth. If you're interested, go to hop.online, that's hop, H-O-P, dot online, and book a discovery call with one of our strategists today. Now, back to the episode. And let's talk a little bit about Optimizer now. And you founded a company back in 2013, right? Yeah. What, what does Optimizer do and how can it help folks? Yeah, so Optimizer is a PPC management suite. It's a SaaS system. And it was built on the premise that we really need to optimize the Google Ads ad spend, right? So a lot of management platforms were about cross-channel management. So, okay, you put one keyword into Google and we'll automatically put it into Microsoft Ads as well. We came at it from the perspective that there's so much money being spent on Google, you should really focus on optimizing that first. And so we have optimization suggestions that are data-driven. And we've also evolved. So nowadays that it's much more about automated business we have mechanisms to help you manipulate your target return on ad spend to slowly get to the right place. And again, because I asked you 600% ROAS, 500% ROAS, it's not a simple answer. You actually have to test it and you have to measure the incremental change that each produces. So these are fairly involved things and we, we've got tools and systems to facilitate that, automate that. And then of course, we also think about PPC automation from the ad engines as something that's great, but potentially 
risky, right? So sometimes these automations go a little bit off the rails and sometimes it's there's just a bug. I mean, we've all seen, I think of smart shopping campaigns, all mm-hmm. of a sudden started blowing through budgets. We have systems that will alert you, that will say, okay, well, there's an anomaly here. There's an anomaly there. This looks to be the underlying reason. And so then we have fixes and we can quickly help you prevent disaster as mm-hmm. you're using more and more automation from the engines. Great. One thing that I just remember that I did want to ask you about as well, and you just reminded me when it comes to budget allocation within Google, because most people, the first thing you think of when you hear Google ads is you think about paid search, but there's also YouTube and there's display. There's all, there are Google shopping and now there's even ads appearing in the Google feed. This is the, the Google Discover. Yeah, the Google Discover feed and in Maps. And so Google rolled out something about a year ago called Performance Max. Can you tell us what is Performance Max and how does that work? You know, I'm happy you brought it up because I feel like we're almost legally required these days to always talk about <laughs> Performance Max. Um, yeah, it's like the hot topic in the space right now, right? So Performance Max is this super automated campaign type that gets you across all the different Google channels. So all the ones you mentioned, Gmail ads is another one that it gets you on. But basically you provide your data feed about products that you sell. If you sell products, if you don't, you don't put that in. Uh, If you're a local, you put in your local business listings, again, feed-based. And then you put in some assets. You put in like, here's a video, here's a couple of like headlines, here's my logo, here's a bunch of images. And then the system like on the fly will try to show your ad across all of these Google channels and get you the conversions that you want. And, and again, if you didn't state what your conversion goal was correctly, then this system is going to have a hard time giving you the thing you really want. But uh, super automated and it's it's, it's kind of neat in terms of your average, not so sophisticated advertiser. It's a really good way to get a, a good result very easily. If you're more sophisticated, then this is more of an additive thing, right? So you're still going to want to run your search campaign, your display campaign, but use uh, a performance max to find things that you may have missed, targets that you may have missed. It does a lot of work with audiences, so it may start pointing out, hey, this is working really well with this specific audience. And then uh, you can take that insight back into your other campaigns and say, okay, maybe I should have built a different search campaign targeted towards a different different audience, which would benefit from a slightly different message. That's kind of what Performance Max does. It's fairly new. So uh, there's a lot of debate still about exactly how to run it the best. Yeah. I can say with a lot of the testing we've done around Performance Max, it's about 50-50 so far in terms of really working well, getting great results or failing. And I can't say that we figured out exactly the formula. But in principle, I love it. And I think this is also a signal of the future, which is that the experts are no longer required to, again, to optimize inside the platform, but to bring, in this case, not data feeds from CRMs into the platform, but bring creative assets and audience segmentation and more thoughtful audience strategies, really. I think audience segmentation is what Performance Max really pushes Mm -hmm. marketers to do more of because following that audience segmentation, you've got these different unique creatives that you've got to back up each audience with. And it's kind of cool because in the past with audiences, you had to associate audiences to your campaigns in observation mode mm-hmm. just to start gaining insights. Performance Max handles that in a much more automated way. So you don't have to say, okay, tell me about these segments. It'll proactively find what those segments are and highlight that. And then you can take that back into your existing campaigns. But you talked about you know creative optimization. And, and for mm-hmm. listeners who haven't looked at this, look at Dolly 2. It's OpenAI's image generation system. And there's also GPT-3. This is their text generation system. And in the past, like two, three years ago, I probably would have said that I think humans are still absolutely critical when it comes to creative, writing the text, creating the images that are beautiful. But machine learning has come like tremendously, tremendously far. Is it Dale spelled 
It's a combination of Wally the robot. Uh, yeah, there you go, Dolly too. The, all the images you see on the screen there are computer generated. So it's uh, you can say, show me an astronaut on a lounge chair at a resort. And you get a photorealistic image and it, it's not an image search. It's actually generating that image on the fly by knowing what is a resort pool look like? What does an astronaut look like? And how might an astronaut be at a resort? I think they just did their first cover for Vogue magazine. So this is amazing. I mean, like the, these are photos that no human was involved in creating and the computer just did for you. Oh, this, this is incredible. Wow. Think of the hours we can all waste by just like thinking of random images to get generated. Yeah. It's really fun. And so uh, Optimizer has access to the open AI system. So we're going to start using it. So say that you have 10 headlines for your responsive search ad and you're struggling to come up with the last five. Mm-hmm. By the way, we did a big study on responsive search ads and we see that by giving Google more options, so by giving it the full 15 headlines, you generally do get more impressions for those ad groups that have more assets, right? And, and the idea is simple, more variety. So more scenarios where Google can show the right ad. But if you're struggling to do this across all your ad groups, your thousands of ad groups, we're going to help you just fill in the blanks. We're going to say, okay, here's the text they already have. Machine learning, go and figure like different ways to say kind of the same thing. And so mm-hmm. it just fills in the variations. Or we might say, well, go and look at this website and this is what the business is about. Give us a unique new like value proposition from that. And it might come mm-hmm. up with something you hadn't even thought about that's actually that you could think was written by a human. And so then the the job of the human becomes much more like give the computer the task and then validate that its output is somewhat reasonable, right? Isn't going to turn away customers, but it's just another one of these mind shifts and the type of work that we do. It's more about collaborating. Um, And we have some really good experiments with it. It's it's an amazingly capable system. And what's cool too is that Google has its own efforts that are very similar to what OpenAI is doing. So Google very soon will start using machine learning to suggest more text for your ads. Mm-hmm. So you can use that, but you can also look at Optimizer or OpenAI to come up with maybe a different machine learning suggestions. And then you can have these machine learning systems almost compete against each other to see which one is the best. And of course, mm-hmm. the more you do that, the more the machine learns. But, but one ca- caveat to that whole thing is, you know, with, with these two systems like Dolly or GPT-3 or even quality score, or ad strength, the ad strength indicator of a responsive search ad is that machine learning is very much oftentimes a closed loop system. So it will make suggestions based off of what it's seen in the past. And this is problematic because with a responsive search ad, the ad strength could be low. And that's just telling you that historically across all advertisers, what you're attempting is probably not going to be successful. But if you're Nike and you come up for the first time ever with this new slogan, just do it, and you put that into the ad, the system would say, that's stupid. Like, that's not going to work. Nobody's ever done this, right? But it's one of the most brilliant marketing slogans in advertising history. Mm-hmm. But machine learning, because it hasn't seen it, doesn't know this is going to work, so it recommends against it. So I think there's still that element of pushing the boundaries, bringing human creativity to the table, and not fully relying on these machine learning systems. Because until we put something into it, it cannot learn whether that works well or doesn't. Yeah. So our jobs are still safe for now. For now. <laughs> if, if we if we can be still be creative enough. Yeah. You got to be willing to change, right? I mean, if you joined uh, the search marketing space, digital advertising, it's a mm. fast moving feel. Like this is not a place where you're going to be cushy and comfortable. But if you enjoy these challenges, if you enjoy this new technology, coming up with new strategies all the time, like this is a fun field. 
Yeah, it very much is. I think it's still got to be one of the most exciting career paths you know, in marketing, in particular, particularly with Google's platform. Yeah. The pace of innovation is uh, it just they keep moving at a breakneck speed. And you probably remember from your Google days, and I remember from mine, that I, I was in awe of the pace of innovation. It just kept rolling out so many new things all the time and evolving the platform. And, and it, wasn't, it wasn't only Google ads, it was every, everything, all yeah. the technology. Just learn some new stuff, play in an exciting field, and now you're going to have a really good career. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. Well, this has been fantastic, Fred. Thanks, Paris. If you want to know more, check out the book, Unlevel the Playing Field. Mm -hmm. It goes into a lot more detail about all of these things. And uh, it's really a hopeful message about the future of PPC advertisers and professionals. Thanks very much for being with me today. And uh, looking forward to keeping in touch. Thanks, this was great. Another great episode in the books. Hope you enjoyed it. If you want to get notified when future episodes drop, be sure to subscribe to Paris Talks Marketing on your favorite podcast player. And to learn more about our growth marketing agency, visit hop.online. That's hop, H-O-P dot online. Have a great day.